0: Hello, today, uh, let me welcome brilliant scientist, Mark Noble is as uh, as noble as his last name, which I think you're very lucky to have in your area name like this. Weissman once uh, did a research to prove that name does have influence on what we actually do in life. Did you find that your name helped you sometimes?
1: Yes, I, you know, Julie. I've often wondered about that. I mean, it, it is such a pleasure to be here with you. You've 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 been leading such an interesting life and doing so many interesting things. I I I think that the answer more is that I learned certain principles from my dear grandfather. Um. When I used to, as a youngster, spend the weekends with him and my grandmother and sweep up the hair in his barber shop, and he he had the pre-translation name of of, of and but I he was a person from whom I learned a great deal about honesty, integrity, and trying to be a good force in the world. He was a he was a true town hero. So I think that's where. The most influence was more than what the name was,
0: but it would be very funny if you, with your name, would be I don't know a thief, for example. Don't you think?
1: Yeah, we wonder about things like this, don't we? As to how much how much our names influence us, and oddly enough, my, 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 the names we we chose for our daughters they inhabit those personalities very fully. So it's an odd thing.
0: So, but you are not a thief. You are a professor of genetics and neuroscience, and you 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 best known for work as a, uh, on a stem uh, cell biology, which is which is a little bit far from my perspective as psychologist from psychology. How did it happen that that did you connect even stem cells with psychology? Where do your interest come from?
1: I've I've been interested in. How the how the human brain works for many, many years. But I, I didn't know how to ask the kinds of questions that truly interested me. And I was fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time to um to become a a, a very successful stem cell biologist. And I had a wonderful laboratory with brilliant people in it. We made lots of amazing discoveries and I've always been quite interested in the journey to the clinic. And we were doing some research on a very rare childhood disease, Um, so rare it's one in 50,000, one in 100,000 children, devastating disease. We're doing drug discovery on that, and we discovered that Quite a lot of the drugs approved by the FDA made the kind of cellular functions we were studying quite a bit worse. And a couple of the drugs at the top of the list were antidepressants. So I wanted to learn about treating depression. In the past, when we made discoveries on, for example, on anti-cancer drugs, I, you know, I knew enough about treating cancer to to talk about that, but I didn't know anything about treating depression. And sometimes, Julia, sometimes the universe works in a very odd and interesting way. So while I was just getting interested in that, I got my my monthly copy of the Stanford magazine that they sent to all the alumni. And in that month's issue was an interview with David Burns about these high-speed techniques he had developed for treating depression and anxiety. And it was a time in my life when I was in the San Francisco area five times a year to review grants for the California stem cell effort. So I reached out to David and told him what I was doing and told him best if I could meet with him and he had very kindly invited me to do that. And what I saw on that first visit was so jaw-dropping that I just wanted to understand it. How could you take someone who had been depressed in the the case of the first case I saw for a decade, the highest levels of depression, the lowest levels of happiness. And in a two-hour conversation, have the depression scores go to zero and be in a state of bliss. And it's just a conversation. There's no medication. She had tried all sorts of psychotherapy before. So after first confirming that this was something that David Burns could do repeatedly and that other people that he has trained can also get these very rapid recoveries, not always in one session, but in a few sessions. I thought, okay, I want to understand this. So that's what I did. I just sit out, said this was a fascinating, important problem. And I thought, Maybe I can figure something out that the least would be good for me, but it has gone well beyond that.
0: But do you do research um, to help understand Burns and, and other psychologists how actually therapy works from perspective of biology? Well, I'm not,
1: I would love to. Um, what I would say is that there have been so many very, very smart people studying psychology, studying how the brain works, that there's an enormous amount of information out there. So one way to do research is to go into a laboratory and work on a on a certain problem. Another way to do another important part of research always is to go to the literature and see what other people have discovered. And to try and think in novel ways. And I, I, and it turned out that it that I I've have a so I would call it a wide ranging set of interests. Other people might call that a lack of focus. Um, to me, it's always felt like being focused, but it's it's covers a big territory, and a lot of the pieces of the puzzle were things I had been interested in.
0: So it's not like you're sitting in your laboratory and and uh, trying to discover how uh, how. It- how therapy works on a cell, or how how it changes brain, is just more the way that you and do analysis of work that others people did and uh, draw conclusion. Well, it, it's it's even different from that. Okay, so okay, what what did
1: what is the most important function of the brain?
0: To warn us uh, if anything dangerous happens or uh, generally to help us uh, uh, make interpretation of the word. Okay. And why does it do that? How does he do that? No, why does he? He it... has his <laughs> neurons? Why does he do it? So we can understand what's happening. We can, we can build our, through this lens of, uh, of our brain and this, um, cells, we can understand what's happening and we can make a decision what to think what to feel, and what to do.
1: So, you, 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 so you're already thinking at a, at a higher level than I do, that the brain has the same function of every other organ in the body, which is to help keep us alive. And then yes. the question yes. is, how does it do that? And then that's where you get into the, that when you get into that how question, you can approach that two different ways. One is you can do, neuroanatomy and biochemistry and all these kinds of things. And there's an element of that that is like saying, I really want to understand the Mona Lisa, so I'm going to take all the pigments in the Mona Lisa painting. I'm going to pile them up to see how much blue there is, and how much yellow there is, and how much red that is. And at the end of that, do you really understand the Mona Lisa? Of course not. So, what does the brain do? The brain receives information from the world. It interprets it and it interprets it to make predictions about what's likely to happen. And then it motivates us to act in a way that is in agreement with those predictions, to increase our chances of staying alive and passing on our genes to the next generation. And we call those motivations emotions. Emotions didn't start with humans. They didn't start with mammals. The machinery of the brain involved in emotions is very, very old. You can detect most of it in zebrafish. You can detect parts of it even earlier in evolution. So emotions are very old, and the emotions have the function of moving us towards something or away from something, with only one exception. With only The only exception is the emotion of surprise. But all the other emotions are either towards something or away from something, towards something we call a positive what emotion.
0: surprise did not do this?
1: Pardon? Say
0: that Why again? Why surprise did not do it? Why surprise uh, does not do it? Isn't surprise makes us like go, if it's a good surprise, move forward, and it's bad surprise like also goes away or not?
1: Yeah, but isn't that the second step of surprise? The first step of surprise is, oh, something just happened that I didn't predict. I have to pay attention. I have to figure out is it good or is it bad? Is it a good surprise or a bad surprise? But that's the second step. So that's why I say the first step of the first emotion is surprise. It's not positive. It's not negative. It's pay attention. All the other emotions move towards, move away. However, what if you make a mistake? So. You know, let's let's journey together back to the er, er, much earlier stages of evolution, when we're just um, mammals living out in the woods, and you hear something or smell something, and your brain says to your brain makes the interpretation that it's a kitty cat, and it turns out to be a tiger. Well, you've just been somebody's menu item, and you've, you're eaten, and you're dead, and you're not going to pass your genes on to anybody. So, we always do a quality control. The brain is always doing quality control steps. So, it doesn't matter if, if you make the wrong interpretation, you think it's a tiger, you panic a little bit, you look around, you find out it's a kitty cat, you've wasted some energy, it's a little embarrassing, but it's okay. But if it's a you think it's a kitty cat and it turns out to be a tiger, that's a bad mistake to make. So we do quality control, and when we do the quality control, if the interpretations change, the emotions change instantly, because that's how the brain so works.
0: So basically, what you're trying to say, this is how uh, how therapy tries to work, to change our interpretation, right?
1: That is exactly.
0: Try to put different filter on how we how we see it.
1: And what, and what David Burns has figured out, because he is such a, not only a wonderful therapist, but a truly brilliant scientist, is that he has figured out the pieces that need to be put together in order to create this new type of therapy. So, Team CBT, which team stands for Testing, Empathy, Addressing Resistance, and Methods, has elements of many other therapies. It's it's built on a backbone of cognitive and behavioral therapy, but it also has elements of psychodrama and psychoanalysis and multiple other areas because Burns specifically built it so that if anything works from any field, it can be integrated into Team CBT and used by therapists trained in this. So that made it very special. Now, after the brain does this as its basis, we have what we try to do with therapy very simply is to activate the quality control step. Problem is that 98% it's estimated of what we call thinking is a type of thinking called fast thinking that Danny Kahneman. Um, my name is serkov I, I don't. Right? Be wonderful, wonderful research. And the, the fast thinking is reflexes. Fast thinking is what we already know. It's the stories we already believe. That's great. If you're out in the wild and you smell something that seems like a tiger, it's the wrong reaction to stop and think and say, well, you know, I wonder... Do I have time to go to the movies? And what do I need to pick up at the grocery store? Because you have to give everything over to your limbic system. You have to act fast. You have to act immediately. Fast thinking. Fast thinking is super. And the fact is that most of our days are just like the day before. So fast thinking gets us through. takes us little, little energy. What we're trying to switch to for any type of learning, whether it's psychotherapy or anything else, is slow thinking, slow analytical thinking. So, that's another aspect of Team CBT is the many ways in which we move people towards slow analytical thinking. And there are many methods by which we do that.
0: How is it different um, than practicing, for example, mindfulness that encourages you to do slow thinking? Because basically slow thinking is being reflective. It's not to let to react, but to have something that teach you on a, on during meditation stop, and and then pause, see what's happening, and then come back to reality. In this case, to breathing or to thinking, to reacting. It's many other ter- therapists' methods of therapy also using this way of thinking that before reacting, pause, breathe, or do some exercise, think, or even if you're very impulsive. Which, for example, I am write your angry mail, but leave it till tomorrow, and just re- reread it next day, and then you can send it. So it's all about slow down and rechecking, and it's being used in many other uh, therapies, isn't it?
1: It it is, and 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 it's it's so so wonderful that that you ask about that mindfulness is important mindfulness to, to use. Possibly an analogy. Mindfulness is like calming meditation. There is a deeper meditation called analytical meditation, which is taking problems apart. So the way that the brain works, every thought that you have, every emotion that you feel, is due to the activity of networks of nerve cells working together. Every time you learn something is because you are modifying a nerve one or more nerve cell networks. So basically, when you are learning something, you are doing very advanced microneurosurgery on your own brain. And that's what we do. So congratulations, you now have a degree in microneurosurgery because you're a human being who learns things. The... What the learning is is basically directed micro So what do we need to learn? Two kinds of things. We have the voices in our head that tell us we're not good enough, that things are going wrong, that we're going to fail, that other people are better than we are. We could call those the bully voices in our head. And the we learn them. We learn them from when we're very young. We hear them from our family. We hear them from relatives. We hear them on television. One of the downsides of all the electronic communication and all the advertising is, you know, you're 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 not good enough because you don't have the latest iPhone, or you don't you're not dressing like the Kardashians, sir. You know, you You can't play basketball like Steph Curry, so you're inadequate. So we have those voices in our head, because that's what we hear from society a lot. And those voices put aside the good parts of us, the virtues. And what Burns realized, and others have realized this too, but Burns brought it to a particularly effective approach to therapy, is that every time you have a negative feeling, every time you have a negative thought, it's revealing beautiful and awesome things about you. So, and it doesn't matter what negative thought you have, and it will reveal beautiful and awesome things about you that you're not paying attention to. So, the first, one of the earliest...
0: So let's talk an example of this, because it's like, I can understand that when I'm saying I'm not good enough mother, it reveals for me how much I care for being a good mother for my son. Um, But if I'm saying that I'm I'm, I'm not good enough, I'm not, I don't know, pretty enough or nice enough to have boyfriend or family, or I'm not smart enough to go to study in Stanford, What does exactly that reveal about me?
1: Well, you're willing to be, for example, self-critical, that you want to, let's call it, better yourself. I don't know if that's the right word, but you see things that you want to change, that you are willing to be honest about flaws that you might have, that you want to be maybe not only successful in your own eyes, but that you care about how others think about you. And it and it's easy to come up with a list of usually ten or fifteen or twenty or more beautiful and awesome things about someone, no matter what they're doing. And and it's it's remarkable sitting there with someone who, you know, who says to you, Come on, I've been I've been depressed for thirty years and nothing has helped me. I've been o i have been I have obsessive compulsive disorder and I waste so many hours of, of every day washing my hands. What can that possibly say that's good about me? And it's easy to find all these wonderful things. So that's the first, one of the early steps, connect.
0: Yeah, I still have a question. To, that is yeah. very important step. So Mark, if you let, still ask a question because um, Burns and old team is like mainly based in states and, and from perspective of different cultures, Americans have this thing that they try to make everything very positive and everything is a little bit more bubbly and positive and, and glittery than it's, for example, on uh, like, I don't know, Eastern Europe, like Ukraine, Poland, where it's everything is a little bit darker and we think more negative than positive. So that's why it's it, 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 it's probably the question that could come from uh, people from different cultures. Where is the difference between rationalization and and the truth here? Because is the truth what I'm saying about, uh, about myself? Yes, I'm like such a great person. I'm trying to improve myself. All' always just simple um, like mechanism that protects my ego.
1: Wonderful. Wonderful, Julia. You're so smart. That's, that's exactly right. So what, part of what would intrigue me about this whole approach and about cognitive and behavioral therapy before that is that it works in every culture in the world. Everywhere it's been tested, cognitive behavioral therapy is successful. One of my favorite projects of anything in the world is the Friendship Bench project in Zimbabwe that was started by, uh, I think his name is Dixon Chabanda, who, one of 12 psychiatrists in all of Zimbabwe, and given charge of mental health there. and with no resources. So, what he did was he trained grandmothers in the basic principles of cognitive and behavioral therapy, and they are part of the the elder leaders in communities, and people come to them, and they do basically see cognitive and behavioral therapy with them, and it's extraordinarily effective. So, if you study the most basic principles of brain function, what you might call the axioms of brain function. I don't mean that they are they have to be true. They're not mathematically true, but the way we understand how the brain works, it, it's very difficult to see how they could be wrong. They apply to all of our brains. They apply to all of our human brains. They apply to primate brains. They, you know this is just how brains have evolved to do their job. So, Yes, the way in which different cultures view these things is very different. That the the, for example, the self-criticism that is very prevalent in American and in um, many European cultures is not so prevalent in Tibet, which has a very
0: they don't know what centered means. Dalai Lama completely don't understand what it actually means negative self-talk, so you, like, he can't understand the concept of this.
1: Exactly right. So so the the beauty, one of the beauties of Team CBT is we have all these ways of making it very individual, very personal, that it's not a script that we follow, it's a strategy. I, I should hasten to say, when I say we, it's, and I say we because I'm so aligned with this community. I'm not a therapist. I'm a scientist who's trying to figure out how this works. So, but, but I spend my time teaching in, 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 for example, in Ronda Barofsky's International Training Group. And, and as you know, I'll be joining you and your wonderful husband for the upcoming international meeting in Poland. Um, so, so I am very ident- aligned with this community. And that's what I mean when I say we. So we have many ways of working individually with people. So you're never going to go wrong. By spending some time on finding these beautiful and awesome things, a step we call positive reframing. But there's a next step, which is identifying twisted thinking, what we call cognitive distortions. Our brains are wonderful things, but we make lots of mistakes, and when we're depressed or anxious, we make more mistakes. And there's only a limited number, right? There's, There's only about a dozen mistakes that we that our brains make, we do black and white thinking, we blame others, we blame ourselves, we use should statements, we discount the positive, we don't pay attention to good things that are happening, and there's about a dozen of these negative distortions. So the goal is that, to, to oversimplify it a little bit, that when you're feeling depressed or anxious and the bully voices, those negative thoughts are what are in your mind. You're going to mind we're modifying that network of nerve cells on the positive side by saying, yes, I may be feeling like this, but that also shows all these good things about me. And by the way, these thoughts are baloney. They have all these distortions in them and they're not even true. So, now you're in a situation where you have, and one of the great aspects of Team CBT is so much of this is in writing. So the pay the client is writing on, on pages in front of them. And they reach a point there where they have the negative thought. They have how much they believe in it in the beginning of the session. They have the beautiful and positive things that the negative thought reveals about them that they also believe in 100% that they're beautiful and positive. And they have the cognitive distortions that are in the negative thought. And what I think happens, what it looks like happens, is that your brain does just what it's supposed to do. It says, okay, I have an interpretation, I have a prediction, and you know something? It's not a good one. It's not right. It's not just that it makes me unhappy, it's that it's not even accurate. Is there a more accurate prediction I can make? Oh yeah. Here's a prediction that I have all these positive sides and this is baloney. All these distortions are, are the negative thought. I'm going to switch, the brain just switches to a different interpretation. That's more accurate. And when it does that, your emotions change because that's what the brain does. The brain and Just
0: just think Mark, true that when we are in a very big distress, like when we are, for example, during panic attack. This is not exactly works this way because then emotion always wins over rationale. So in this kind of situation, you can't really talk still to the person. That's why, for example, it's a lot of uh, um, exercise with vagal nerve that it calms you down before somebody able or you even yourself able to talk to yourself. So this is how somatic therapies also work. They, they're trying also using knowledge about the brain calm you down, and so when you're already not one huge bowl of anxiety, then you will be able to think about it.
1: Absolutely true. We can also do that with language. The most powerful tool to change our brains is language. That's what we're evolved for. So when we are, we always after we, we've we've given someone a, a survey, we call the brief mood survey, which is kind of like an emotional thermometer that gives us information on different types of emotions. The next thing that we do is we have.
0: Why did you say, Mark? Can you ask about this? Why did you say that the most powerful pull is to a uh, uh, tool to change its language? Because I always thought that you know, from perspective of brain and how we as humans function, we are more. Um, species of experience of emotions. So I thought it's more, um, uh, experiencing something changes, not the language. So but language so we... is way more rational feelings.
1: So, yes. And, and, and I, I, and I, I, think, and you're saying that, that, that the word language may mean different things to each of us. So we, we have had a long period of evolution selecting for humans who can communicate with language. So our brains are very specialized for that. But language is not just words, right? Language is how you say something. You know, if I say to you, um, let's see, Julia, wow, you look really beautiful today. That sounds that has an emotional content very different from, oh, God, Julia, you look so beautiful today, <laughs> right, and you can make it really bad, huh, huh, Julia, you just look so beautiful today. That's part of the language, and another part of the language is body language. All of that is part of language. So we're very well trained to pay attention to all of that. It's critical.
0: What about? I still want to dig into this because I remember how in my studies we had, um, on uh, on some classes we had example of child that was sexually molested when it was pre-speaking age. So it was around one, one and a half, and the therapist discovered it because because of also the symptoms that the as an adult this person has symptoms of person who was sexually abused and the biggest thing was that discovery that our body our brain remembers and have also this neurons connection that remember this abuse even so the language was not used so the only way to heal is without language because the language is not there so it's only pure emotions so there are some kind of traumas where involve uh, no language. We just get scared. We do not even get any interpretation because either we are babies or we, like, we did not have time. Maybe sometimes to have this interpretation.
1: Yeah. Yes, and, and yes, and then when and then internally, we turn that into a story, which is language based. You're right that up until the age of six or seven, very few people have any um, verbal memories. Um, and 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 often what happens and there's a wonderful book by the the great uh, therapist and hypnotist Michael Yapko on on um, on abuse where so many of the, the times that people were making these diagnoses the therapist was making it up and families were destroyed by this. It was just a it's, an, it's still an awful chapter in in the world of of therapy and and pseudotherapy it's easy to to and 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 I'm not minimizing the how awful it is when things like this happen i think that that unfortunately some people have have tried to turn it into a story that explains everything but but even so yes our brains even earlier than that record information that if for example we can make a prediction that a lot of the children being born in the Ukraine right now, in Ukraine and and in Russia too, right, and in multiple African countries and all sorts of different areas of the world, their brains are wired to be more aware of danger because mom is so stressed. That means that mom has higher cortisol levels and that's changing the wiring of the brain as it's developing. So, the, the, the circuitry of the brain becomes more set for perceiving danger because that helps keep you alive. But even so, it's going to work by the same principle. So, the question is, how do you get out of this fight-or-flight reaction? Again, mindfulness is very useful. If you do empathy... In a skillful way, it's very useful. If you do empathy in a non-skillful way, it's a complete disaster. And um, that is a problem in, in not only many types of therapies, and in, in, in relationships and in friendships, is that people do what they think is exhibiting empathy, and in fact what they're doing is is activating the other person's fight-or-flight reaction. They don't intend to. But it's the effect of what they're doing. Curious, you curio. Do you would like to know how they do that? Why that happens?
0: Yeah, I would love to, and I also would like to know what not to do. Uh, so by accident, not to start this flight and fight or freeze reaction.
1: Okay, it's it's really it's really simple. What it's called in Team CBC is the ad zero concept. So, we when people, I I went. I was very curious. I went and I read about empathy. There's so much interest in empathy. So what does the science community think about empathy? And the great majority of the literature is about how do you understand another person's emotions? And we talk about mirror neurons and, you know, being lined up with someone else's emotions. And what I realized reading that eventually was that it was irrelevant, that empathy is about how the receiver of the apathy feels. It's not about the therapist. It's about the client. What is the client feeling? Or your child feeling? Or if you're arguing with your partner, what is the other person feeling? And can you interact in a way That reduces the defensive reactions, the 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 need to feel that they're being attacked. Now, there's many ways in which you can you can attack someone. The mistake that is made very frequently in families and friendships and in in therapy sessions is, so let's say you're a client, you've come to a therapist for help, or you're a child a teenager or a five-year-old, whatever age, and you go to your parents for help. And you can travel back in your own mind to instances like this. And the person you're talking to says, did you try this? Did you try that? Did you try this other thing? You think you're being helpful, but the person you're talking to is in their head is going, what do you think I am? Some kind of idiot? Of course I tried that. You're not listening to me. You're not hearing me. So we don't try to help. Empathy.
0: I like I so like feel what he's saying because I hate when people like I I know it's a strong word, people hate when somebody using hate, but I really hate when people using like obvious things or things that makes no sense i'm telling about some my drama since so it's like oh don't worry everything's going to be okay you don't know if it's going to be okay or like when i'm saying that i have problems with a uh, i don't know sound imposters did you try to do it in a room without a windows it's like if like hello of course i did try or i don't have a room without windows so it's it is very difficult for me to handle when people saying this, and they just don't know what to say. They don't know how to handle somebody else's emotion and they cannot shut up. Because sometimes all you need is somebody just to be for you. Just be and not to say anything. To be for you. Just say like, I'm here. What do you need? You we, we want to be listened. You want to be hugged. You want to like go for me and kick ass somebody who, who like you're upset with. What do you want? Like, instead of just asking, how can I be helped? What is it that you need right now? We all have this banal fair talks. That means nothing, bullshit, zero. It makes you feel like, like shit that somebody's not listening.
1: Right, right. And if somebody says to you, um, oh, you're so strong, you'll get over this you know, let's say you have a breakup in a relationship. Oh, you know, you're, you're, you're better off without this other person, and you're so strong, and you're so brave. We call that cheerleading. And it's another, and you feel in your head, just like you said, you're not listening to me. You're not paying attention to me. You're paying attention to you. It's not about you. That's not what I need right now. And then we do a third thing, which is which is so important and we're so bad at it. So let's say that you'' you're, you're telling me a story about um, some trauma that you've had. Okay? and I want to, I want to con- connect with you. So I will say I will ask you, and we'll do this multiple times in an empathy session. Let me make sure I understand, and then I'll repeat it back to you. It's a little changed, but not much. I'm very careful. We all are very careful not to change the language, because I don't know where trigger words are. So you can say that you're having, and this is a story that, that, that Burns tells about someone he was working with, had two... Two bad things happened to them. And Burns said, Dad, well, you, you've had her. he was doing good empathy, and then he said, See, you've had these two bad things happen, and it's a real double whammy, and went on with the rest of the empathy, the empathy session. And at the end of the session, where we evaluate, paid the client evaluates the session, he got z- scores of zero on his empathy, that the session was not helpful at all. So we've trained to view that as an opportunity to do better. And so we said, apologized to, to the person he was working with and said, please, I, I hope that you'll come back and see me again. I, I hope, I think that this is a great opportunity for us to, to really work together effectively. And, and what, what did I do that upset you? And she explained that when he took the bad things that had happened to her and describe them as a double whammy. For her, that was turning them into a panel of a comic book. She had taken his trauma, her trauma, and now turned it into a comic book story. And she was gone. That was the end of the session. So, language matching, very critical, because we don't know what a word means for you, but I know if I use the same word you used, it's the right word. So, when you're doing empathy, it doesn't matter whether you're doing this with a child or an adult, whether you're doing it with a lover or a boss. These are the steps that you take. With children, it's it's also, I think, also with adults. With children, it's good to do a little bit to connect emotionally, change your your, your tone of voice a bit to connect with their emotions. I'm
0: voice lower down so you can see the eyes. Yeah, I, I have this question because it's a, a little bit different. Like not a little bit different. It's actually the opposite. What I was taught as in my school, as a psychologist, how you do paraphrasing, because we've been told exactly the opposite. Like you cannot say exactly the same words because it will feel like you mimicking this person and it, it may not feel comfortable that you just keep repeating like a parrot or it's just not good. So try to use a different word. So this person feel like you're listening You're you're not just parroting, and you are saying, "Do not use your words; just mimic the words of the client."
1: So, so let me let me see if I understand what you just said. That that you were taught in in, in your training, um, not to use the the same words, but to actually paraphrase. Because, um, if if you use the same words, you you, you may sound like you're just parroting, um what they said, like you're just functioning as a tape recorder, but but you're not really listening to them. So did I understand that right?
0: Yeah, I understand it. Absolutely.
1: Okay. Did you feel like I was parroting you?
0: No, but I felt, I tell you what I feel honestly. No, but I also felt maybe something wrong with me that I could not explain to you better that you have to repeat, Mark.
1: And then we would have gone on. And I would have encouraged you to share more with me. And in fact, we did, there's a very clever scoring system at the end of the, but possibly as we're approaching what could be the end of the empathy session. So you say to the other person, you say to the therapist, as the client, if you were to give me a grade for how well I'm understanding you, what grade would you give me? This sounds so simple, but it's so subtle and it's so brilliant because any grade less than an A or an A plus means you miss something. Even if somebody gives you an A minus, they're telling you you missed something. And you can just say, you know it sounds it sounds like I missed something pretty important. what 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 did I miss?
0: Mark, but you're assuming that people telling the truth and you know that it's not truth. Not true. Because we have a lot of people-pleasers who would rather die than say anything unpleasant to people they respect or they like. So uh, so for many people who go to the therapy by their low self-esteem or their problems with assertiveness, that would not be possible to say the truth. How was my session? How do you judge me? They would lie. It... I think
1: now I'm saying this as someone who's trying to understand this, but I spent many hours, many, many hours talking with therapists, talking with David Burns and and asking questions like this. And a lot of therapists say what you just said, that my patient's not going to tell me the truth. Turns out that's bullshit. That in in, in a very specific way, in a very specific way, if i've done empathy skillfully enough to build a bridge with you so that you and i are standing side by side you'll be honest with me because we're now friends we're now aligned with each other and you may have stuff that you're ashamed of you may have stuff that you don't want to share and it's very frequent for people in in sessions to start sharing Secrets that they've had for 30, 40, 50 years that they've been deeply ashamed about that just pour out because they're in now this very safe setting where they're not going to be judged. They're not going to be attacked. They're going to be accepted for who they are. And the truth emerges. And, you know, if the truth doesn't emerge here, if you feel like there are things to uncover, we have all sorts of very gentle techniques for doing that and for coming in, what would, would I call it, coming in through the side door, instead of coming in through the front door. And that I is... I think
0: here you much bigger believer in humans than me. I do believe humans lie, and they're very gentle, sometimes they're just not capable of telling uh, of telling the truth. And here, it's a very beautiful assumption, but... Do we have any data that supports that we know that people do not lie in this kind of situations?
1: I, I think that the there's a sequence of well thought out steps that you must be used in the, in pretty much in this sequence that. From the moment you talk with someone on an intake interview, you're using various approaches to try and, and develop an alignment together so that the person feels safe and accepted. B, there are hidden emotions. Frequently, anxiety is associated with hidden emotions. There are things that people just don't want to talk about, but we'll talk about, given a safe setting. Are there people who won't tell you the truth? Sure, but what you've done before that is you have used what a a, a, a skill that we call dangling the carrot. And the carrot is recovery. And what happens when you do that is you activate this. this, We have many biases in the way we think, and one of the biases that we all seem to have is something called desirability bias, that if there's something we really want, we will interpret our thoughts in accord with that. And one of the things that we desire is to feel good about ourselves. One of the things we desire is to not feel miserable and there's these interesting studies that they did, I find them interesting. That one of the greatest impediments to doing therapy is what's called confirmation bias, where you interpret everything in terms of the story you already believe. Well, the one bias that is strong enough to overcome confirmation bias is desirability bias. So if someone now sees the prospect. feeling better. Because why are they seeing you as a therapist? That's because they're not happy. And if they have the prospect of becoming happy, that can open a lot of doors. If you are a therapist delivering some, the type of therapy where where you're saying that, uh, you know, for example, well, you know, we think that over several years, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll make some progress through this journey, or we have these pills that you can take they may make you feel better, but they also may have lots of side effects. That's very different from the confidence of saying, look, we have these very, very powerful tools. And with work with thousands and thousands and thousands of people at this stage by several thousand different therapists trained in these skills. We know that there's a very good chance that working together you are going to be on the road to feeling not just less unhappy, but to feeling happy, to feeling joy in your life. And what would it be worth to you to have those feelings?
0: i using your carrot, huh? I know that. Mark, I want to go back to conversation about brain because you're a very unique person for me to talk to because most of the people I talk to are psychologists. You're a scientist and you're like, you're a biologist. So can you tell us what do you know about brain? What do you think that we as a normal people do not know enough, what we can use in our everyday, um, everyday life, but also our everyday, um, Desire to change something for better.
1: Okay. N- number one, your emotions are not the boss of you. You are the boss of your emotions. But you can't just boss your emotions around. You can't say, oh, no, I don't want to feel anxious right now. You have to go through this. So you step-
0: cannot treat them as a terrorist. You need to negotiate. Or, yeah, don't you? you- not treat your emotions...
1: No, no, it's you have to work on the interpretation. why do you feel anxious? That's where you can start to take things apart. So that that mindfulness step that you talked about of being able to step back and say, "I feel this way, why do I feel this way?" That's an important start of the process. That's one aspect of brain function. Another aspect that I think is is valuable for people to understand. So we, we talk about lots of different parts of the brain. The brain has lots of different parts. And emotions, we talk about a very old part of the brain called the limbic system. And we even talk about a special part of the limbic system called the amygdala. And the limbic system deals with lots of things, including positive emotions and negative emotions. And when it does the negative emotions, do you know why it does that? It does that because your limbic system loves you. Your limbic system loves you. Its job is to protect you. And it's giving you information. And you can say to your limbic system, Okay, I've got, I'm listening. I've got the information. And... You know, when I th- now that I think about it, I think that this is a level two event. I don't need a level 10 alarm. You know, I think a, a level three alarm will be just fine. We can, we can turn that down a bit. Now, does it kind of work instantly? Sometimes it does. Sometimes you have to train yourself over the course of several weeks to do this. Well, goodness, if you've had 30 years of misery and you're going to spend several weeks, learning new ways of thinking to get out of the misery. That sounds like a pretty good investment to make. So
0: I think it's very beautiful idea to think that we do have friend inside ourselves. So we do have somebody who loves us, our limbic system. So if we have already friend, so we should treat ourselves more friendly.
1: Yeah. Your limbic system is, is like a, you know, it's like, if you have, if you have if you have a dog that is, you know, is, is that you love so much in your home and, and a stranger comes to the door and the dog starts barking and the stranger goes away, the dog's brain says, oh, great, I just protected my person. That's great. I did my job. That was fantastic. So now somebody else comes to the door who's not a stranger and the dog starts barking. And maybe the person goes away. And the dog says, wow, that's that's great. I protected my person again. And soon the dog is barking at people walking down the street and is barking at the wind. But every time that you're safe, the dog's brain says, I did my job. Well, that's what your limbic system is like. And for me, having the image in my head is very helpful of having... But from for me, my limbic system, because I happen to love golden labrador dogs, um, is because they're so playful and so smart, is I have an image of a golden labrador who might be barking, who might be so frightened that they're cowering in the corner, or they might be in a playful mood, or they might be looking around exploring. And I have this interaction with the golden labrador. Is to, okay, you know, yeah, wow, I see you're, you're cowering in the corner. What are you afraid of? And you're barking. What are you trying to warn me about? But don't you want to just, do you want to go outside and have some fun? Do you want to explore life? Do you want to explore life? Because as many wise people have noticed, um, one of the mistakes that we humans make is we take so seriously what the gods gave us playfully
0: so from perspective of how we should deal with um our limbistic limb, uh, uh, limbistic system on everyday basis when we got this horrible fear and panic for example before presentation and it's just a small presentation, but we feel like, you know, it's end of the world. How do we, like, how do we work with this? How do we calm down our Labrador?
1: So first steps are always, what am I, what am I feeling? What are the thoughts that are underlie those feelings? What are the wonderful things about me that those thoughts are revealing? Are there cognitive distortions? And then if we're talking about anxiety of any sort, and it doesn't matter whether it's speaking anxiety or OCD, which is in the anxiety family, or PTSD, you got to do exposure. The only way to defeat the monster is to find out that the monster has no teeth. The way that I've been doing a lot of work lately with with, uh, inner-city kids here in Rochester And the way that we've been talking about it this past week is that when your bully voice is, is, when you hear that bully voice in your head, that bully voice is like a vampire feeding on your energy, and it's growing like a balloon and growing bigger and bigger and bigger, and And it's so scary. And if you try to fight the balloon, that's not going to work so well because you're still kind of scared. But if you take the energy back from the balloon, it deflates. How do you take the energy back? Well, my goodness, Julia, these kids are so fantastic. So we were, you know, how do you deal with an insult? And one of the kids did did this. One, one, One kid said, you're a freak. And the girl she said that to said, I am a freak i am fabulous i am responsible i am exciting i am amazing and i am as cool as can be and that's one of the things that we do now you're weird yeah i am weird i am wonderful i am exciting i am intelligent i am respectful and i am dynamic Positive reframing, Positive. beautifully done. And that's one of the things that we we do. If you do that, you can start talking yourself out of this. If you do the cognitive distortions, you can help. But you have to do the whatever's scaring you. I learned that um, one of the ways I learned that was we had a family vacation in Costa Rica, and. My daredevil wife and my daredevil youngest daughter were very excited about going ziplining, and uh, I had managed to keep hitting all these years my fear of heights. And we're up on this high mountain, and going—you know—about to go out on these zip lines, hundreds of feet above these canyons, and traveling at sixty miles an hour on these steel wires, and I could do all of the positive reframing and cognitive distortion that I wanted, but the only thing that was going to take the anxiety away was to get onto the zipline, which, by the way, was terrifying. And there were five ziplines, and the problem that you have is that when you go down the first one, you're stuck, now you got to go down the next four. So the first one, I could barely open my eyes. The second one, I could open them a tiny bit. I tried to say, okay, I'm going to sing on the way down, and I couldn't open my mouth. By the fourth one, I I was enjoying this. I had to confront the monster. You have to confront the monster, public speaking. You have to confront all the monsters. Because if you don't, the monster keeps coming back. Not only that, your limbic system says, oh my God, that monster really is scary. We really should be scared of it because it really is a big, big, scary monster. Once you defeat it, you defeated it. So it's something that everybody should learn. Don't run from your monsters. Make your monsters run from you.
0: That's beautiful. Well, that is a very optimistic way of uh, finishing our conversation. So thank you so much that... uh... Even so, in my head, scientists, especially biologists uh, and people who do, you know, genetics are very, you know, like in Spanish you say, quadraticos, like thinking very rational. It's very beautiful to find out that you can connect uh, um, gentleness of human soul with the science and you can explain brain in such a, like, beautiful, gentle way. So, thank you so much, Mark.
1: Oh, Julia, that's so kind of you, and it's such a pleasure talking with you. And look, the only reason I can do this—not the only reason, the major reason I can do this—is because I, this Team CBT community that you and your husband have become part of, that David Burns started, that we have 3, 000, probably three thousand or more trained Team CBT therapists in the world now such wonderful people and i learn so much every time i get a chance to to interact with all these splendid people i've learned so much talking with you here today with your wonderful questions um and i i look forward so much to the next opportunity for us to chat together
0: i cannot wait i absolutely cannot wait thank you so much mark
1: and you too julia take good